Happy New Year. Feliz, feliz Año Nuevo. That's how we say it. It means the same thing. <laughs> what a great day, way to start and to kickstart the 2023, that being together as God's church, as God's people, and singing um, songs to him and, and hearing God's word. Let, let's um, just be an encouragement for all of us to keep going and to keep um, pushing through, um, encouraged by the Spirit of God. Um, because we have little time, I'm just going to go and I'm going to jump straight into it. A quick, a quick summary, because uh, I know that we have um, been in Matthew for a little bit. We started a couple weeks ago, and then there was a, a pause, and then we, we resumed, but then there was another pause for, for Christmas, and, and now we're, we're resuming again. So just, just something very quick, uh, a quick summary of, of, of Matthew 1 and 2, chapter 1 and 2. Um, chapter 1 of Matthew starts with the genealogy of, of Jesus. So how can it be traced back to the Davidic line, bringing forth the compelling argument of the validation of the Messiah of Jesus through his lineage? Matthew adds to the narrative the conception and birth of Jesus and how the miraculous circumstances of this event fulfill the prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, the virgin will, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we know that Emmanuel means God with us. And that was, the, that was a sign that the virgin will be with child, and, and that is fulfilled in Mary. So you can see that from the beginning, Matthew has an idea. From chapter 1, he has an agenda that will constantly bring forward. And this is that, the, that he will offer evidence and arguments defended with the scriptures, with, with scriptures from Old Testament, to certify and to validate the kingship of Jesus. So that is the claim of the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus is king. So again, in chapter 1, the kingship lineage of Jesus and the testimony of the heavenly messengers that visited Mary and Joseph. In chapter 2, Matthew keeps bringing this old prophecies from the Old Testament. So he brings four different prophecies and their fulfillment. Um, the first one is that the king will be born in Bethlehem. You can trace that back to the book of prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. That the king will be born in Bethlehem. Also, the identification of the king with his people in the book of Hosea. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. The assassination of infants by Herod. Um, Jeremiah, um, chapter 31, verse 15. And the identification of the Messiah as Nazarene. And for this one, there is not a specific quote or a specific passage of Scripture, although it is believed that Matthew is using the concept of Nazarene found in some of the writings of the, of the prophets that connect this Nazarene idea of the despised and rejected. The Nazarenes were despised and rejected in the times of Jesus, and the identification of Jesus, um, uh, as it was his, his experience, um, will identify him with them. So Jesus is king by prophecies, but also by what his coming is setting in motion. The testimony of the Magi. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And the reaction of Herod the usurper. So Matthew has been very thorough in his exposition so far. 
And we'll continue now in chapter 3 with his intention of presenting Jesus as the promised king that would come to rescue his people. Now, I want to show you how I'm going to go through the text, so that's why you have those, those uh, notes aid. You will see that the, um, I have divided this chapter into two portions, two sections. The first one from verse 1 to 12, and the rest, the section 2, will be from verses um, 13 to 17. Now, each portion is focused in some interesting details. And the first portion that I have titled The Herald's King are three subdivisions. So in the first, um, first section of chapter 3 that I have named The Herald's King are three subdivisions. One, the herald's identity and role. Two, the herald's ministry. And three, enemies of the kingdom. So let's go to the first one, the herald's identity and role. So who is this John the Baptist, and why am I referring him as a herald of the king? Let's take a look at the first verse, Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So John, and let me add this, because I, I remember seeing a couple of videos on, on, on social media, on Facebook, on YouTube, about, about people arguing with Christians about the names of the disciples of Jesus. So how you have people in, in Jerusalem in that time called John, called Matthew. Like, where did we get those? Well, the name John, and maybe this is for those who, who like to do apologetics, but um, the name John is a translation, right? He wasn't named John. He wasn't named, we, we, we call it in Spanish, Juan. See, his name is not that. It's a translation, just to make it more easier for us, because the name, the original name, is it's often used Yohanan, Yohanan, or Yohanan. And that means the Lord is gracious. So you have this, this name of John or Yohanan, and this might help you, uh, again, if, if you want to, to use this uh, to present a, a bit of defense, because I've seen that uh, some people get really complicated with this thing. I've seen the, the comments on Facebook and people fighting about the names, and there you have it, a little nugget. Um, John... Um, son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, who was related to Mary, was in itself the fulfillment of prophecies, and his arrival was also miraculous. And you can learn more about, more about the life of John the Baptist in the Gospel according to Luke. Um, we don't have the time to, to go through all the, the biography of, of John at this time. But John has spent most, most of his life in the desert, his appearance strange for the time, dressed in camel hair and using leather straps in the desert. One important thing about the use of some words in this first verse, the word translated as came, see in the first verse, um, chapter 3, verse, verse 1, it says that he came. Um, this word is often reserved in its original language to be used only for those who are exercising a role of I'm, I'm lost, sorry. Um, someone who is announcing the, the arrival of, of a, an official or someone of great importance. So this word came, if you want to um, underline it and, or mark it in, in your notes, it is a word used to specify the role of someone who is speaking about someone of great importance that is about to come. But this announcer or herald had a specific role and was not only to announce and proclaim the soon coming of the king, 
but also the preparation of the roads. The work of a herald in those days would be to travel alongside of, of servants or slaves that would be taking care of the road. Roads back in the day are, are just flattened dirt, full of holes, um, rocks, and, and, and potholes, and almost like Toowoomba streets, kind of. <laughs> so they will take care of every inconvenience that they could find in the roads, ensuring that when the king's caravan will pass through, it would do so without any accident, accidents or delays. Or delays. So is this then the role, how does this then the role of John the Baptist? And take a look at what the scripture itself tells us. What is he doing? So he's, he's fulfilling the role of a herald, announcing and proclaiming the soon-to-come king, also preparing the, the road. And how is he doing that? Verse um, 2 and 3, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this was his message. Actually, the word referred here as preaching, caruso, has to do with the action of announcing or to proclaim and Matthew will use this word several times in his, in his gospel, referring to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. So this herald of the king is announcing the soon-to-arrive king. This herald, for some, was believed to be the resurrection of Elias, of the prophet Elias. But this was explicitly denied by John, and Scripture tells us that he came in the spirit and the power of Elias. This is a reference to um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 17. And he will go before him, speaking about John, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of, to, of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John was appointed even before his conception to be the king's herald, a role, a role that he took seriously and diligently. The second point, sub subdivision here, the herald's ministry. Now that the ministry of John is related to his identity, we see that what he does is it's related to who he is. And this is a very important aspect of this portion because you'll see that his identity and occupation are always tightly attached to whom who has called him, appointed and the one whom he serves. His ministry then is the practical way in which his role is displayed. He announced the coming of the king with this. Matthew 3, um, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is also referred later in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, verse 24, after John had preached before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Again in Acts 19, verse 4, then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And an analysis of this preaching, of his preaching, will lead us Primarily to consider this call to repentance. 
the original word being metanoeo. This is not just a call to feel sadness or remorse. And it does mean, it doesn't, does not mean a simple change. The implication of this call to repentance are of deep conviction to move from bad to good, to move away from sin, and to come into righteousness. And we see this all across of the writings of the New Testament. And in the Old Testament as well, this is a call to completely change one's way of thinking. It does imply action, an action to turn from sin and run, run towards holiness. So this change is the type of change that will bring pain and disgust for our sin. Pain that will lead us to a change of thought, desire, and conduct in our lives. So this call to repentance, it is a call to be converted. This message was the preparation of the road for the king to come. Repent, conversion, and the commitment of a transformed life. Then we get kingdom of heaven. The gospels will use different phrases like kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And they are interchangeable concepts. This for the audience of John must have been very shocking to hear. Because the Jews believed that just because of their ethnicity, they were called, because they were called the people of God, and just because of being Jewish, they thought that they were at the moment already in the kingdom of God. But the message of John slaps them in the face. You are no different than the Gentiles. So you have no claim unless that there is transformation, unless there is repentance. A change of heart and life. And John knew what they would say to, to him. That is why he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees this next statement in Matthew um, chapter 3, verse 9. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So the message of John wasn't a message that came up based on his own cleverness and, of, and his human wisdom. This is a message that was already designed by God to call his people back to him. For example, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the gospel according to Mark chapter 1 verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and <laughs> Excuse me. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke chapter 5 verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And these are the words of Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. So then the disciples follow the same pattern the same pattern, and proclaim the same message. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, And they went out and preached that men should repent. And in Pentecost, the final word of the powerful sermon preached by Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And once again, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Therefore, repent and return. Repent and return, so that your sins might be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So what is the purpose of the herald and the heralds of the king? In the words of the Apostle Paul recorded in Acts 26, verse 20, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. So the herald's king brings forth a message but also invites them to take steps that will demonstrate this repentance and change. Verse 6 in chapter 3 in Matthew, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. This baptism that John performed and that deemed him the surname of the Baptist was a novelty for Jews. You see, as a Jewish tradition... They will establish a series of washings, religious practices that will be performed several times uh, even during the same day. There were the ceremonial washings and even between different groups among the people of Israel, there would be different types of the ceremonial washings, religious practices. But, But this baptism that John would perform was a different thing. It was actually a practice separated for the Gentiles that would Come into the true faith of the Jewish people. And remember that these people are Jewish. And that they are coming out, out, of, out of the city, out in the desert, in the river, to hear the message of John, to repent, and to be baptized. It is quite a striking scene, what we have in here. And this was a great testimony. The symbol that they understood that their national and ethnic descent would not save them. That they had to repent, to abandon their sin, and to trust in the Lord for their salvation. They knew it. They understood. So they took the steps. And this is, this is moving people and people's attention and what's going on. Why are the people going? Cue for the enemies of the kingdom. There's uh, two particular groups, Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for, this bapti- for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? And a quick introduction to this, guys, because there's a lot. About, about these two groups. The Pharisees were a fundamentalist Jewish religion faction, or, or even we could call them a cult. They were primarily focused on the Jewish lifestyle and practically lived to be seen by others, to be noticed and admired. Jesus himself called them out. Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7. But, but they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their, their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. There's never kind words for them. <laughs> Ever. 
and the Gospels. And on the other side, you had the Sadducees, ultra-liberals, kind of like progressive um, and sons of the sacerdotal aristocracy. These are the sons of all priests. And this group had no care for the Greeks and their culture, but they were very attracted by the pragmatism and the way of living of the Romans. So they would claim, the Sadducees, they would claim that the Mosaic law was their supreme and only religious authority, although they cared little about doctrine and religion. They didn't believe in the existence of angels uh, and the resurrection and any that could fall into the realm of the supernatural. So the way of living was almost as the slogan, carpe diem, living only for the present. Take all you can from whoever, seize the day, and indulge. But these groups, even being so different, are put together. Pharisees and Sadducees, when you read them in, in Scripture, they are referred as just one large group of people. And they belong together because their lives, their claims, and their hearts were in active enmity with the kingdom of heaven and its king, Jesus. A comment on the confrontation of John the Baptist against this group of religious phonies. His words are strong and they are loaded with fire because he knows that in order to continue with the hypocrisy, they are even willing to go through baptism. Now, the mention of vipers or snakes and fire is not a coincidence. It was a common practice that farmers, after reaping the field, their fields, will burn the remaining stems, and this would make all kinds of creatures to run away, including vipers and snakes. John accuses them that they are doing this, coming to, to baptism, that this baptism would act as an insurance against the spiritual fire that it is to come. And let me be clear as John the Baptist. Coming to church every Sunday doesn't save you. Singing hymns and Christian songs does not save you. Serving, being in the front, being behind a pulpit does not save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Your offerings and your tithings do not save you. None of those things can protect you from the wrath and judgment of God. True repentance and a genuine conversion will do. All of those things that some people think that might protect them if they do them won't produce the necessary change in their hearts. And that's why we cling to the words of Jesus himself in John 3, 3. Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Dear ones, the call for repentance is one that comes with the claim that for those who say that they know Christ, that are sure that they have been born again, need to demonstrate this by this new way of living that will correspond to this new birth. We need to move, so let's go back to our text. But I encourage you, if, if there are any doubts and, or questions, please come after the service. Seek one of the elders. Talk to them or to me. 
It is a great subject that demands more time, time that currently is, is running out. So, the second portion for this chapter, from verses 13 to 17, I have titled The King's Coronation. The first point here, I have, I have comprised um, three sub-points. First one being the king's arrival and baptism. The second being the anointing of the Spirit. And the third one, the Father's claim. So the first, the first um, sub-point will be the king's arrival. And this portion starts with Jesus coming to John to be baptized. It is not specified when John started his ministry. So we won't play a guessing game with that. Also have in mind, we don't have information, at least to my knowledge, on why Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30. It is never explicitly explained, explained and there are several hypotheses about it, but I don't want to play that, that guessing game either. So I'm going to say, we don't know. At least I don't know. <laughs> if you know, maybe share it with, with me later, but I don't know. So I'm not going to pretend that I, that I do. What we know is this. Jesus came, that word again is used to refer to an official arrival and a public appearance of a king, of someone of great importance. Jesus comes from the region of Galilee, more specifically from Nazareth. The all accounts make an emphasis on the fact that Jesus arrived by himself and not accompanied by anyone, not his families, not his friends, and none of the disciples um, since these ones have not yet been called. Another thing that I think is relevant is to remember that John knows who Jesus is. And I'm not talking about the familiarity of the relation, but the knowledge of the divine identity of the Messiah. In the Gospel of John, verse one, um, chapter 1, verse 29, on the next day, I'm sorry, um, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, on the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when we see that Jesus comes to John, we see that the first reaction of John, when they get close, is, a, is one of confusion. Verse, verse 14, back in Matthew 3, verse 14. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be, to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He doesn't understand. John, John is baptizing for confession and repentance. So what did Jesus need to repent from? And John knew this. Like, you have nothing to repent from. Like, what are you doing here? You need to baptize me, not me to you. And this has been a topic of many debates. And in fact, there's one major point of inflection for those who claim that Jesus is nothing more than a great teacher or, or just another of the prophets. Because if he took part in the baptism of John, um, the Baptist, then it means that until that point, he wasn't divine. But we know that this is not the case. So how can we explain this? Let me provide an explanation for this. First, Jesus is exemplifying obedience. So the claim from John about righteousness was valid. And with this action, Jesus is declaring that this is the will of God for men and that it is required from them, for, for them to submit themselves 
do it. And secondly, Jesus came so he could be identified with men and their sins. This is a representation of the identification of the saving Messiah with those who he came to save. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and intercede for the transgressors. Romans, chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men, of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Second Corinthians verse five, um, chapter five, verse twenty-one. Second Corinthians chapter five. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this, for Jesus, is a symbol or image of his identification with sinners, but also with his death and resurrection. And for those, for some, this is also the anticipation for the practice of baptism adopted by the church in the first century. The second point in here is the anointing of the Spirit. And because of time, I can't, I can't address all the aspects here about, um, and, and here about baptism. But again, if it's something that you would like to talk about, feel free to go to one of the elders or, or to me and, and ask. And, and if you have questions or doubts or disagreements, come for it. It's, it's good. Once Jesus is baptized, it is mentioned in that the heavens were opened. And he saw, and they saw, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. In this fantastic view, the heavens open. It has a great relation to what happened when the veil in the temple was stripped in two after the death of Jesus. The veil split in two symbolizes the perfect access of man to God. This shows how close to God man can be. But in the case of the open heavens, after the baptism of Jesus, this reveals how close God is from Jesus and Jesus from God. An important passage also for the doctrine of the Trinity. We understand that the ministry of Jesus is a, is a ministry, is a Trinitarian ministry. And by that we also understand that salvation and the forgiveness of our sins is also a Trinitarian ministry. Now why does the Holy Spirit come down, comes down over Jesus? Is this a moment where the human nature of Jesus and his divine, divine nature merge? No, that is not the case. The God incarnated in Jesus did not lose his divinity. The purpose for the Spirit to come over him was to anoint him for his service, for his ministry. The Spirit will grant him the strength to fulfill his ministry, to bring power in his human condition, as prophesied again 
by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Also, why does the Holy Spirit come down as a dove? It's an interesting aspect of this is that in the times of Jesus, the sacrificial animals were expensive. And do you remember the Sadducees? They sell the animals. They are the merchants of the sacrifices. Those are the people that Jesus kicked out of the temple. They had the monopoly of sacrifices. So in the Jewish mind, the dove represents sacrifice. But not any type of sacrifice. And this is explained by this. The rich of the time, those who had the um, financial power, could offer oxen and big animals. But those in the middle class would offer lamb. But the majority of people are poor. So they can only offer a dove. And once again, Jesus is identifying himself with those he came to save. It's a beautiful thing to do. It's a beautiful image. A dove. Everyone can get one. But it has come to us, the perfect sacrifice. The third point of this um, sacred portion, the Father's claim. The last verse of this portion and chapter is like the cherry on the top of everything else. And behold, there was a, bo- a voice out of the heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The confirmation of the Father, the demands of a holy God that are impossible for man to fulfill. The way that the sacrifice had to be perfect, unblemished, pure, without defect. But of the one who came, the one that voluntarily identified himself with sinners through his baptism, the one sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Father says about him, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Dear ones, none of the sacrifices performed till then had been up to the holy standard of God. It is impossible to find an animal that would not have some kind of defect, some kind of imperfection. There is not one. But not only that, we know that the blood of the animals was just as a symbolic, a mere image. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the sacrifice that Jesus would offer in that cross, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And that, and that is why God says, the Father says about Jesus, I am well pleased. Jesus being examined by God is found to be pleasant in his eyes. He found no imperfection in him. The one who would endure such a scorn from man was found pleasant by God himself. 
To wrap this up, I would like to offer two final thoughts. The first one, the first conclusion, is that this is about identity. When we look at John the Baptist, we learn that his identity, and as an expansion of it, his ministry, flow from the identity of the one who sent him. In other words, John knows who he is, what he has to do, and how to do it, because he knows who Jesus is. John knows that Jesus is king, so he goes as his herald, as a representative of the king and his kingdom. But now we, and this is great, and this is, this is amazing, now we are also called to be heralds of the new covenant. We are appointed to go, and you'll see, God not only bring us to his kingdom, but he not only gave us a place into his family, but with the new life, he makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5, um, chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so, as new creatures, we are given new purpose. Those who by the power of the Spirit of God have reached repentance and conversion are made heralds. Or in other words, ambassadors. Second Corinthians, again, chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ, as God is pleading through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God pleading through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we know who we are. We, we know who we are and what we are meant to be because of Jesus. We can not only know who we are, but how to do it by his example. And the example set for us by his disciples. So we are heralds. We announce. And we have a message. And the message is still the same. Repent and believe because, because the king is coming. Repent and believe because the king is coming. The second point to conclude this this has relation with the first one. To know our king is to know assurance. To know our king is to know assurance. Having assurance is a great thing. But to know assurance, I like that better. Knowing assurance means that we are beyond a feeling. We don't have assurance because we feel we have it. We have assurance because we know who gives, who gives assurance to us. We know Jesus himself. 
The accounts of the Gospels gives us certainty about our King. They show us that He is who He said He was, but also that He did what He said He would do. And by that, we can be sure that He will do what He said He will do. So we know assurance because our assurance is in the person of Jesus Christ. So we know now that in Christ we share his, his identity. And as Jesus hears the words from the open heavens, now we can be found to be pleasant to the Father. We are the ones now who are looked from above, and we can rest in that, that the Father himself, when he examines us, finds no imperfection. The Father himself, when he examines us, finds no imperfection because the perfection of his Son is now ours. By his grace, we are the pleasant aroma in his presence. So now you know your King, and every day you can know him more. And in half, and in fact, we will have eternity to keep knowing him. We will never stop knowing our King. We will never stop knowing our Jesus. We will never stop knowing our Emmanuel. And because of that, we can know ourselves. So this new year, more than resolutions, more than goals and milestones to reach, be. Be who your king calls you to be. Dear Lord in heaven, we come to you as your children. We come to you because by Jesus we've been brought near. Because by his sacrifice, because by, by his ministry, because of his perfect work of obedience, because of, the precious, of his precious blood that has cleansed our sins, we can come to you and claim and cry, Abba, Father. Our God, our Father. We come not in our works, not with our deeds, but with the ones of our King, with the ones of Jesus, the one you sent for, for sinners like me, for sinners like us. Remind us, Lord, who we are, who you have called us to be. Move your spirit amongst us and fill us with courage, with strength, with power. We plead and we prayed. In Jesus, our King. Amen.